John chapter 8, primarily, we'll be looking at 7 as well, but especially at verse 12 of chapter 8. So I want you to imagine that you are a 21-year-old theater major. Uh, you are attending a, a Hitchcock festival as part of a class in film theory. So you decide you want to take this class too. You're taking this class. You've heard of Hitchcock, of course. You've never actually seen one of his works. Um, so you go to the festival, and it's going on all week long, but you go on a Tuesday, and uh, the, f the films start at 4 o'clock, and they run to midnight. And today's features are uh, all, f all have Jimmy Stewart starring in them. So there's The Rope at 4 o'clock, followed by The Man Who Knew Too Much, followed by Rear Window, and followed finally by Vertigo. Somewhere around 7 o'clock, you doze off. And when you wake up, you don't know if you've slept for three minutes or for three hours. When you dozed off, you're watching James Stewart on a bus in Morocco. Now he's sitting in an apartment in a wheelchair with his leg in a cast. And you're wondering, is this the same story or not? I think we have similar questions about the Bible. When we started, it was all about Abraham, and then about Moses, and then about David. And now it's all about Jesus. Is it the same story or not? It is the same story, and it is about Jesus. See, it's always been about Jesus. Because the, the stories of Abraham, Moses, and David lead to Jesus, we can't afford to ignore them if we want to know him. The New Testament writers relied heavily on those stories and their biographies of Jesus. Jesus himself relied on those stories when he introduced himself to others. So we see that especially in John's Gospel. Um, in chapter 6, 7, and 8, Jesus repeatedly frames his own story with the stories of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. In chapter 6, he uses the Exodus 16 story of manna from heaven to introduce himself and explain what a relationship with him will entail. In chapter 7, he uses the Exodus 17 story of water from the rock to illustrate what he's able to do to refresh and save people. And in chapter 8, as a way of revealing who he is and what he'll do for us, Jesus uses the Numbers 9 story of the pillar of fire which guided Israel through the wilderness. So we're about to look at that passage. Uh, before we do, there's a textual matter that could get in our way. I'm sure some of you have wondered about it. So back in chapter 7, in verse 2, John states explicitly that the events he's narrating took place at the Feast of Tabernacles, or also known as the Feast of Booths. Tabernacles was a week-long festival, arguably the most fun of all the festivals, in which tens of thousands of people flooded Jerusalem for what amounted to a gigantic camping trip. They came to the city to camp out. And yes, there were religious services to attend during the week, but they slept at night in makeshift shelters or booths, feast of booths or tabernacles, which they made out of sticks and thatch and then decorated. And I know the kids loved it. It was, it, it was a large-scale, week-long historical reenactment of Israel's formative years that they spent in the wilderness. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. 
There's good reason to believe that chapter 8 takes place in the same temple courts during the same festival. But here's the textual issue. What do we do with verses, chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11? And why do our modern versions bracket that or footnote it or even exclude it? I'm sure some of you have seen that in John chapter 8 and wondered about it. It seems almost certain that John chapter 7, starting with verse 53 and going through chapter 8, verse 11, is not part of John's original gospel. Scholars have come to that conclusion for quite a few reasons. For one, it doesn't appear in a single manuscript before the 5th century. It's just not in any manuscripts prior to the 5th century. After that, it begins appearing, I mean, it's a great story, but after that, it begins appearing in some texts with what amounts to, to a scholarly, scholarly asterisk next to it, which meant that the scribe had questions about its legitimacy. In some texts, it shows up not here, but in different places in the Gospel of John. And in one text, it doesn't appear in John's Gospel at all. It appears in Luke's Gospel. The vocabulary in these uh, 12 verses is noticeably different from that of the vocabulary in any other part of the Gospel of John. In fact, it's a lot more like Luke's vocabulary than it is John's, which is fascinating. There are 13 words in the first 11 verses of chapter 8 that never occur in any other portion of John's Gospel. And this section interrupts the Feast of Tabernacles narrative that began in chapter 7 and continues in chapter 8, verse 12. So there are more reasons to question the text. Those are central. So here's the point. It seems to me this section was not originally in John's Gospel. Now, that doesn't mean it didn't take place. There are all kinds of stories about Jesus that were circulating in the first century, which John chose not to include in his gospel. And he even tells us why. This is chapter 20, 20 and verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. So there are reasons to believe that this story of the woman caught in adultery at the beginning of chapter 8 is true, that it really happened. But I don't believe it belongs to the Gospel of John. And if you want to talk further about that with me, I'd be glad to. Uh, but what that means is that chapter 8, verse 12, follows immediately on the heels of chapter 7, verse 52, without interruption. So with that, we're going to read... John 7, 37 through 39, and then we're going to skip over the story of the woman caught in adultery and pick up again in, in verse 12 of chapter 8. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, this is John's comment, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And then chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying here about water and about light, we need to know more about the Feast of Tabernacles, which was being celebrated as he spoke. The feast was established back in Leviticus chapter 23 when God instructed the nation to celebrate this feast annually, told them when they were to celebrate it, told them the materials they were to use in making their shelters, and told them why they were supposed to do it. He said, you shall dwell in booths for seven days, one full week, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The Feast of Tabernacles include various ceremonies, including two important ones to our text. The first took place at the very beginning of the feast when a priest would light giant candelabras that were erected outside the temple treasury in the court of the women. Those torches would shine brightly and illuminate the court. And the second ceremony, an officiating priest would take pitchers of water from the pool of Siloam and pour them out in the basin at the foot of the altar in the temple. Now, both the light and water ceremonies were an important part of the, f- the Feast of Tabernacles. They were symbolic. Remember, this is all about the time Israel spent in the wilderness. The torch-lit candelabra were intended to be a reminder to the worshipers of the pillar of fire that led Israel through the wilderness during her pilgrimage to the Promised Land. So you have this light that's supposed to remind you of the pillar of fire. That light kept them on course during their pilgrimage kept them out of trouble and from going astray. The water ceremony took place on the final day of the feast. The priest would pour pitchers of water into the altar basin, and he was reminding worshipers that Israel was once dying of thirst in the wilderness, but God saved them by making water spring up from a rock. St. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 10. It was on that last day that Jesus stood and said, on the day the priest did this, Jesus stood and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. At some point during the week, the giant candelabra of torches, which represented the pillar of fire, was extinguished. Uh, Scholars debate which day that happened, but everyone agrees that on the final day of the festival, the great lights were no longer burning. It was on that day, in the absence of that light, Jesus stood up and said, I am, and it's that emphatic I am we've been looking at in the style of deity. I am the light of the world. What a claim. It's not the only one. There are many claims Jesus made that seem to be over the top. In this chapter alone, he says, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Verse 14, I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't. Verse 16, I stand with my Father who sent me. And he's speaking of God, whom he calls my Father repeatedly. Uh, Verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. Verse 24, if you don't believe that I am, and that's the emphatic I am again, 
you will indeed die in your sins. Verse 42, I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he, God, sent me. Verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Verse 54, my father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Verse 56, your father Abraham, the patriarch who had lived two millennia before this, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Verse 58, finally, before Abraham was born, or literally before Abraham was, I am. That's just in this chapter. I think we often underestimate the extraordinary claims Jesus made about himself. We're not going to take on all those claims. Uh, We're just sticking to those in which Jesus used the emphatic I am. In this case, I am the light of the world. Now, keep in mind the setting. You can't forget that or you'll miss the point. Festival goers were remembering the pillar of light, a fire that guided Israel through the wilderness. But Jesus doesn't say, I am the light of Israel. He says, I am the light of the world. That claim has roots in other Old Testament scriptures, particularly in Isaiah, which was Jesus's, I think, favorite book. Uh, In Isaiah, we read God saying, it's too small a thing. He's speaking to his servant. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus sees himself in those terms as the servant restorer, a light for the Gentiles, the bringer of salvation to the whole earth. Now, look at the promise that's attached to this claim. I am the light of the world. Jesus goes on and says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That is some promise. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. The never is in the original language quite emphatic. What does that mean? Is Jesus saying, if you follow me, you'll never experience uncertainty? because I have sure had my share. In fact, the disciples had their share. Even though they walked closely with Jesus, they experienced plenty of uncertainty. And even Jesus himself experienced uncertainty. Do you remember him in the garden praying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me? Clearly, Jesus doesn't mean his followers will not experience uncertainty when he says you'll never walk in darkness. He seems to be promising that the person who follows him will have enough light to see how to proceed. That doesn't mean that person will see everything, but that he or she will see enough to keep following Jesus. I was on a prayer retreat a couple weeks ago. And, and each night we did our final session out by uh, uh, out around a campfire. 
And it's the end of September, last day of September, but the fireflies are out, which I don't think I've ever seen them out so late at night, but they're fireflies and notice that. And then uh, we would spend that, that last time in worship and in communion. And then after that, everyone went back into the retreat center except for me. I went out into the woods, went out a quarter mile or more into the woods. I wanted to see if I could call up an owl, which I was unable to do, but that's what I was out there doing. So by that time, it was fully dark. Uh, the moon had not risen, and I'm out in the woods having trouble seeing my way. And then I noticed those fireflies. They had settled down into the grass on the path. They weren't in the brush, they weren't in the trees, just on the path. And so if I followed their lights, I could, see, I could stay on the path and make my way back again. If I looked around, I didn't see much, but I could see the path. I could see enough to follow the path. In a similar way, the light of Jesus enables us to stay on the path. That's an important idea. Because, and here's what I don't want us to miss, Jesus is leading us somewhere. The light of the world doesn't shine for people sitting in an easy chair, but for people who are going somewhere, people who are following Jesus. Jesus does not say, I am the light of the world. Whoever professes faith in me will never be in darkness. He doesn't say, whoever attends church, takes membership classes, reads the Bible, gives an offering, will not be in darkness. He says, whoever follows me will never be in darkness. I've run into people over the years who felt abandoned by God. And, and here's what I think. That when they first came to faith, you know, they, they were, started going to church. They responded to an uh, invitation from Billy Graham or something like that. They thought they were signing up for in-home God service, thought that God would take care of them while they pursued their own little thing in life. They somehow missed the whole part about follow me. They didn't realize they were signing up for an expedition. So when Jesus led the way, they stayed where they were. And after a while, they realized they were in darkness and complained that Jesus wasn't giving them light. But of course he was. He is the light. They just weren't anywhere near him. See, all it takes to live in darkness is to stay where you are while the light moves on. The Bible repeatedly represents God's people as pilgrims, not as settlers. The psalmist was right. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. The author of Hebrews says, we are strangers and aliens here. St. Peter tells us we must adopt the mindset and lifestyle of a wayfarer. Yes, God has prepared for us a city. That's Hebrews chapter 11. But we're not there yet. Here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. See, we're born in exile, in enemy-occupied territory even, and Jesus is the one who knows the way home. 
There'll be light enough for anyone who follows him, but darkness for those who won't. His guarantee in verse 12 applies only to those who are following him. It is null and void for everyone else. This, I think, is the number one reason people who claim to believe in Jesus experience darkness. They're not following him. They expect him to stop what he's doing, turn back from where he's going, and light up their stationary life. You might as well demand that the sun stops its course through the heavens so you can spend another hour on the beach. The Christian life was never about God making you more successful. So all you televangelists, it's never about that. It's never about God making you more comfortable or healthier where you are. It's about taking you where you must go but have never been. Light is not given so that you can, this is important to understand, light is not given so you can make decisions, but so that you can follow Jesus. We want light so we can say, should I buy this car? Should we move to this town? Should I take this job? But light is given so we can follow Jesus. When Jesus introduces himself as the light of the world, you have to understand, he is introducing himself as a leader and a guide. He is not a stationary light. He is on the move, and if we wish to benefit from his light, we must go with him. How often we pray earnestly for God to do something. Oh, God, would you do something? But we miss his answer because it's waiting further down the road, and we won't get off our duffs to go see it. The Christian life is a pilgrimage. It's an expedition. It is a movement, not a placement. We have to face the ramifications of this. It means if we're in the same place spiritually, relationally, intellectually, vocationally that we were last year at this time, that the light is receding from us. And the darkness is growing. The people of Jesus are people on the move. Christians are always bemoaning the, the darkness of our culture. But guess what? Our culture has always been dark. I don't think we realize this. You know, our culture experienced um, a period of growing interest in religion and spirituality that started largely around the time of the Second World War and lasted about two or three decades. And we think, oh man, we got to get back to where we were. Well, if you go back to the 1800s, there were fewer people in percentage-wise in church on a Sunday morning than there are now. See, our culture's always been dark. If the darkness is growing now, it's because the church has stopped following Jesus and tried to stake out a permanent, comfortable home. 
Instead of complaining of the darkness, we should be following the light. Only when we're following the light of the world can we be light for the world. If we let the light go without us, we're not going to be light to the people that are left behind. So what should we do if we realize that we've been sitting still expecting Jesus to sit down by us and keep us comfortable? Well, what should we do if I'm not seeing this promise fulfilled in my life and I realize it's because I'm not fulfilling the condition on which it's based? I'm not following. How should I proceed? Well, I would suggest you start by rethinking your situation. Ask yourself, is the life I'm living worth the price I'm paying? Because if you're not following Jesus, you are paying a price. You're missing out on interaction with God, which is the only thing that will ever fulfill you. My friends, we are not going to be fulfilled because we got a new car or a new house or somebody told us how great we were. We're only going to be fulfilled by interaction with the living God. You're missing out on spiritual transformation. We're meant to be changing into something we're not yet. You're missing out on joy. You've had to exchange genuine hope, which is extraordinarily powerful, for the motivation of a cheap imitation. So if you rethink your situation, decide you want more, you want to be part of the great adventure, then call out to God. Though Jesus is a hundred miles beyond you, he'll hear and he'll come back for you. He has never failed to do so for anyone who genuinely chooses to follow him. He will come to you and it will be his joy to do so. Only don't make the same mistake you made before. Get up and follow him. Your job is not to get him to do things for you, but to go with him where he goes. My servant will be with me where I am, Jesus said. Reading the Bible and gathering with the church are rich helps in following Jesus, but they are not a substitute for following Jesus. Start by taking the step that he sets before you. And I found that that's often hard for people. And it's often the reason they quit following in the first place. Uh, maybe it's that step is forgiving someone who's hurt you or asking for forgiveness. It might be saying yes to a challenging request. It might be saying no to someone you know will be disappointed. Uh, it might be giving away money that you're afraid that you're going to need later on. I don't know what your step is, but if you pray and follow Jesus, he'll give you a step to take, and you need to take it. Don't sit still. The promise is for those who are following. Whatever step God calls you to take, he'll help you take it. So expect his help. And so following Jesus in this way is at first pretty awkward. And, and, and we often don't know if we're doing it right. That's normal. You know, when we jumped out of the airplane this week, I was not afraid at all of jumping out of the airplane. But I didn't know where I was supposed to be, what I was supposed to do here. Are you supposed to move this way or that way? And that was awkward because this is the first time I didn't know how to do it. And, and it's like that in following Jesus. But you get the hang of it. 
And as you do, your sense of confidence will grow along with your happiness and your sense of anxiety will decrease. You come to realize, and this is a great thing, you come to realize that if you get it wrong, God will still get it right. Just keep following. That's the thing. Keep following. Jesus is the light of the world, and that light is on the move. Whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whatever it takes, follow him. Let's pray. God, I know, and probably my friends here don't know this, but I know that this is not the message that I started to preach. But I think it's the message you have for us. And so, Lord, don't let us get away from what you want to say to us. Help us to get up and follow you. Amen.